So, so 2 Samuel, we're going to be looking at, at chapters 18 and 19 this morning. We're going to look at David's return to Jerusalem. And so, so this morning, we're, we're going to see civil war take place in Israel. There's going to be war within the nation. It's going to be father versus son, David versus Absalom. And while the, the battle itself, you, you'll see it's, it's mentioned almost in passing, the focus of, of these, these chapters is, is going to be David's responsibility to lead post-war. So, so there's schism, there's division, and, and we're going to see the, the responsibility of David as the king to lead. And we're going to see the cost of this rebellion, this war to David. It's, it's going to cost him personally, and it's going to cost him politically. So, so we're going to see this war in its aftermath. And, and what, when we get to the end, chapter 19, we're going to see that, that David is on his way back to Jerusalem as king, but we're going to see it, it's not quite the same. And so it's almost as if the, the golden age of, of Israel's king is already over. It's already marred because when he goes back, things, things have changed, and, and we're going to see a fracture that's occurred within the nation that's going to, it's going to be prolonged for, for decades and decades to follow. Um, so, so we will um, we'll go through. Let me, let me pray right, right now as we, as we begin, and then we'll look at the outline, and, and we'll begin. So, so let's pray. Uh, Father, Son, Spirit, the, the triune God, we worship you, uh, one God in three persons. And, and we ask Spirit, third person of the Trinity, the, the one who has been given to us, who dwells within us believers, we ask, Spirit, that you would open our eyes to the wonders of your word. Would you dissect our lives? Would you use this word, this scripture, the divine breathed out word to, to dissect us and, and teach us and convict us and guide us so that we might live as your people? And so we ask you to do that because we can't, I can't, we need your help. And so we ask you to do this in, in Christ's name, amen. Well, let me, let me show you the, the outline at the, at the beginning, and then we're going to read part of, of chapter 18 at the beginning. So, so the, the four sections that we're going to divide these two chapters in, first we'll see the victory of David's servants, and so, so David's army, we're going to see them victorious there at the outset, and then, then verses 9 through 18 of chapter 18, we're going to see the death of Absalom. So, so David's son is, is going to die, and we're going to see that. Then, then the following section, verses 19 of chapter 18, all the way through the first eight verses of chapter 19, we're going to see David's grief over Absalom and, and how that affects David and, and those who follow him. And then finally, all of the rest of chapter 19 will be David's return to Jerusalem that we just mentioned. And, and our time is going to get progressively shorter. Okay, so, so though the most verses are in section four, that's going to be the least time spent. So, so just, just so you're not worried. I mean, you don't look at your clock. So, so at the beginning, let's read. I'm going to start in chapter 18, verse 1. And I'm just going to read the first 18 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 18. So beginning in verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. 
And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and went and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing that's hidden from the king, if I had done that, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and they threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument even to this day. Well, that's where we'll stop and what we'll pick up later, uh, right, right from there. But, but let's, let's look at these, these first 18 verses. So, so first, let's look at verses 1 through 8, victory for David's servants. So, so last week when we ended chapter 17, David and all of his servants had marched out of Jerusalem over the Jordan, and, and they were camping in a, in, a, in a city. They were in a fortified city, and, and Absalom, David's son, remember, had turned or stolen the hearts of thousands of Israelites against King David. And so Absalom is chasing David out over the Jordan. So they, they both have gone out, and, and war is on the brink. And so we find that David apparently had a good number of servants because he organizes them in thousands and hundreds. And so he has these groups, this military, this, this setup, this army that he's built. And he has Joab over some, and Abishai over some, and Ittai over the other. So those are his three leaders. And so David, when, when battle is commencing, remember last time when he stayed home from battle, it, did, it didn't go well for him in chapter 11. But that's actually what started this whole thing. So David says, I'm going with you. And they say, no, 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 bad idea, bad idea, because you're the only one they care about. You're the only one they care about. So you stay here from the city. You stay safe, and we'll go take care of business. And so David, I, I think a humble response, gladly agrees. Maybe he's happy, maybe he's happy, but, but it seems that he's, hum, he's humbly agreeing with what they deem best. He says, whatever he says, is what I'll do. And so they go, but, but as they go, there's a very important Thing that happens there in verse 5, and, and we're told that everyone hears this. David, as they're going out, he tells his three generals, deal gently with the young man Absalom. So, so deal gently with him, right? So everyone hears that as they go. So David knows, right, as he's making this comment, he knows that Absalom must pay for what he's done. 
However, Absalom is still his son, and at this point, David's already lost two sons, and he's concerned for his son Absalom. Now, this will come up again, but, but we should at least recognize that the relationship between David and his son, it's complicated, right? Yes, Absalom is leading a rebellion against his father. He is the one who's leading this rebellion. Yes, he's, he's done some pretty despicable things. And yes, if, if given the chance, Absalom would probably have killed his father, but while all this is true, Absalom is still David's son, and David still cares for his son. And so as David is navigating these waters of, of being a father and being a king, it, it's going to be difficult for him. It's not cut and dry, black and white. It's, it's messy for him. And so as they go out, he says, be, be gentle with Absalom. So in verse 6, as the army goes out into the field against Absalom in the army, right, in unremarkable fashion, the narrator tells us that the men of Israel were defeated. Right? So David's men win. And the loss was great, 20,000 men. And just like that, the battle's over. And so that tells us that the focus shouldn't be on the battle itself because that doesn't really matter, right? The, the focus also is on all the surrounding events. The limited space given to the defeat of Israel tells us that the point isn't the outcome of the battle. And instead, as we keep reading, the point is Absalom. So what happens? So to, to set the stage for what, what happens to Absalom, verses 6 and 8 tell us that the battle terrain was mostly forest, so that comment about the force devoured more men, it's not like the trees grew arms and legs and, and, and attacked them. It's just saying that, that this troop, or that David's men, used the force, and it was because of the force that many of the men died, because the, the, the troops of David had took that, used that advantage of the heavily forest thing. And so a, a smaller army could defeat a larger army because of the terrain, much like, think about the, the Revolutionary War in, in our history. So, so the, the, it, it takes place much of it in the forest. And that's how David's men were able to, to, to win. And so after the battle, we pick up in verse 9, we go to the second section, the death of Absalom, because the forest plays a large part in the death of David's son. So specific details aren't, ex, aren't exactly clear, but we, we do know is at the end of this encounter, Absalom is stuck in a tree. Okay, so, so Absalom meets some of David's men, and it seems like he, he just comes upon them. Maybe he didn't see them because of the force. It turns a corner, and there they are. And, and whether he is running away from them and, and doesn't see a tree, what, whatever happens, we don't know exactly, but, but what happens is that he is stuck in the tree. And it's probably not so. So maybe I, I know the front of our bulletin has a, has a picture of, of that. Um, and, and most people think it's, it's not his neck. So when I envision this, I think, oh, his neck is in a, in a V of a tree. But what Earlier in 2 Samuel, there was a comment made of his hair, how he would only cut his hair once a year, and when he cut it, it was a huge deal. So most likely, his hair is what has caught him in this tree. And so he's hanging there, suspended. He, he's not, he's not, not breathing, so he's not suffocating. He's caught by his hair and unable to get down. I think that's why he can stay there so long, and the man can run away and tell Job, and Job can come back and him still be there. And so he's caught in this oak tree. And so the men see it, one of them reports back to Joab. And when Joab hears, he can't believe that this man let Absalom live. What, what, are you, what do you mean you've seen him? Why didn't you kill him? And, and Joab offers, I would have given you 10 pieces of silver and a belt, which is a, 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 I, the response of the servant. I don't, you could have given me 1,000 pieces of silver. I wasn't touching the, sons, the son of the king, right? Because this man heard the orders given to all the commanders. Don't hurt Absalom. Deal gently with him. And notice we, we, know, we, we learned something about Joab here because he says, but besides, even if I did kill him, 
when the king found out, which by the way, David always finds out, this man tells Joab, you wouldn't have backed me. You would have stood aloof acting like, I didn't know. And so he tell, this, this man knows Joab and his reputation. He says, you wouldn't have cared, so I'm definitely not doing it. And so Joab doesn't disagree with that assessment. He just says, I'm, I'm done wasting time with you. And so Joab takes care of Absalom himself. He takes three javelins, sticks them into Absalom, who's there still, suspended, hanging between heaven and earth. And then to complete the act, ten of Joab's armor bearers strike and kill him. And just like that, the rebellion is over. Absalom's rebellion is defeated. So the son of David who led this revolt, who just a chapter ago, we were worried about the kingdom and about David. Well, now Absalom is dead. And it's over, and David's throne once again appears to be safe. And so Joab blows the trumpet, and all of David's servants retreat. And so they take Absalom, they throw him in a pit, and they raise a pile of stones over him. Then all the Israelites, those who had been supporting Absalom, they return to their homes. And that's the end of Absalom. And so before we look at the the third section and we look at David's grief, I just want to stop and, and make a point of application from the death of Absalom, because I think there's a point of application here. I think the one thing we ought to learn, and I think what the narrator wants us to know because the focus is on Absalom, is that in his death, we see the judgment of God. I think that the the story is told in such a way that we are not left wondering, but instead we leave the passage knowing Absalom is a cursed man. Now remember back in 2 Samuel 17, right? God had willed to bring harm on Absalom. That's why the the council of Ahithophel was, was... was done away with. Right? So, so part of it is because of David's sin. So part of what's happening to Absalom is because of David's sin. And we'll, we'll say more about that later. But, but another reason that this happens to Absalom is because he has set himself up as an enemy to God's king. He is trying to kill and overthrow the Lord's anointed. Right? He's a rebel. He's a rebel against God's ordained will. And I think the lesson for me and for you to take away is simply that it never ends well for those who oppose the Lord. It doesn't. It never ends well for those who oppose the Lord. And just to make sure that we recognize how Absalom is to be remembered, there's two points that that the narrator makes that I think make this point that this is a cursed man. The first thing is is he's portrayed as a man who's hung in a tree. And this is not a coincidence. In in Deuteronomy 21, the man who is hanged on a tree is the cursed man. And there's all kinds of implications for Jesus on the cross, and that's what Paul picks up in Galatians. He became a curse because cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. So here's Absalom who's hanging in a tree. So he's cursed by God. But second, the other point that's made is how he's buried. So he's thrown in a pit, and there's a pile of stones thrown on top of him. And this is exactly the same thing that happened to a man named Achan back in Joshua chapter 7. So Achan was a man who rebelled against the Lord, and actually he, he stole for himself things that the Lord had commanded them not to take, but to destroy. And Achan steals them, and he and his family, when they're put to death, right, they are buried under a heap of stones. And so, and so I think the, the point of Absalom's death is that those who rebel against God, his enemies, are those who will in the end be cursed. And so, so, the, so the sober point of application is if you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, whether, whether outright or not, you are opposed to the Lord. You are an enemy. And I'm here to say that you ought to learn from the death of Absalom because it will be your fate if you don't turn from your sins. If you don't turn to Jesus, you will be cursed in the end. 
I can't say it more clearly than that. But you have a chance. And God's will for you is that you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus and that you be saved. That's God's will for you this morning. And as you listen to my words, I pray that God would convict you and that you would turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus because there's hope for you. All of us here who are believers in Jesus, it's not that we're better than you, right? We are just as deserving of that judgment, but we have turned our eyes to Jesus. And there's hope for us. And so we would urge you to do the same. And if you're hearing you're a Christian, you're hearing this, you should be humbled and grateful that though an enemy, once an enemy, you have been brought near and made a friend. And so there's hope in Christ. So we have to learn that from Absalom's death. Well, as we, as we move to the third section here in, in chapter 18, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to read the, this third section. So if you can look down in your Bibles, 2 Samuel 18, I'm going to start in verse 19 and pick up our story right where we left off. So in verse 19 of 2 Samuel 18. Then Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Job and he ran. Joab and he ran. And then Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So Joab said to him, Run. Then Ahamaz ran by the way of the plain, and he outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and he told the king, and the king said, well, if he's alone, then, then, there, then there is news in his mouth. And he drew near and near. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called out to the gate, and he said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahamaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man, and he comes with good news. Then Ahamaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth. And he said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahamaz answered, when, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it, what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with, with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the, for the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. 
And the people stole in the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. Then the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and he said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants. Your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because, king, you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be happy. Now, therefore, arise Go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not one man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose, and he took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king." And we'll stop there. So, so we see David's grief over Absalom. Well, when Absalom is dead and the rebellion's over, word then has to get back to the king. Right? Remember, David's back in the city. That's where he stayed. And so Joab, who knows David, who knows how David has typically responded to people with bad news. Remember, some people have gone to, to the king and said, I have good news, and David, David doesn't reward them. Right? He, he, he doesn't deal kindly with those. And so he says, Ahmaz, you should not take the news, but instead let's send this Cushite who doesn't know about David's reputation? He doesn't know what awaits him. Let's send him to tell the news. I think that's why the Cushite just says, yeah, this man's dead. I don't think he recognizes what's going on there. Ahimaaz is adamant. He wants to go, and so he eventually convinces Joab to let him go run after the Cushite. Now, whether he was just a lot faster, most people think the route that he took was around, a longer route, but much easier terrain, and which let him get there sooner, Regardless of, of why, Ahimaaz gets there first. And so in verse 24, David, I mean, he's just waiting for news. He's worried about his son. So he's waiting. So two messengers are seen coming. And David is certain, well, Ahimaaz is bringing good news. He's a good man. And so when he gets there, he tells David, King, you've been delivered. The Lord has delivered you from those who sought you. In other words, the war's over. We won. Your servants won, King. And David, notice, he, he doesn't care. Right? He doesn't care about that. His his, he defers that, and he says, is it well with my son? Uh, tell me about Absalom. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't care about if we won or not. I care about Absalom. And Ahimaaz doesn't answer the question, although he knows what happens. He knows, he says, I'm not telling the king. Maybe I shouldn't have wanted to come. I'm not telling him. And so he refuses to bring the bad news to the king. And so about that time, David says, no, stay right here. Here comes the other guy. He's caught up now. Let's hear what he says. And the Cushite has no problem bluntly telling David what has happened. You won the war, and oh yeah, about Absalom, may, may all your enemies be like him because he's dead. That's how all the enemies of the Lord's anointed deserve to be. That's basically what the Cushite says. And David, verse 33, deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he wept, he, he's reciting over and over, my son, my son, my son, would that I died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So here's the father, the father mourning the death of his son. Upon hearing the news, the, the grief is too much for David. Remember, this is his third son that's died. But more than that, I, I think part of what David feels is guilt 
Because remember, David's responsible for this. The, the death of Absalom cannot be separated from David's sin and its consequences. So surely David recognizes and he feels the weight of the fact that, that it's my fault. It's my fault that my son, my third son, has been killed. The sword is not departing from David's house. Remember that this is his consequence. And I think this is why he says at the end, would I had died instead of you. It's almost as if David is crying out, I wish that I would have died for my sins and not you. And if you remember when, when Nathan the prophet came to David, and after David confesses, what does Nathan say to him? Don't, don't worry, you're not going to die. The Lord has put away your sins. You're not going to die. Now, David, in the emotions of this moment, in his grief, he's wishing that in fact he had died, that the Lord had dealt with him instead of his son. We'll say more about that in a second, but, but David is grieving over his son, and he goes up, and it's a very public mourning. But he doesn't have much time to grieve, because as this story transitions into chapter 19, word gets to Joab. And Joab, when he hears that David's mourning has, has turned to day that should be filled with celebration, remember, these people are returning from war, and they're, they're victorious, and as they return, their, their king is mourning. And so, so they're turned into people that should be celebrated, into people that are ashamed. And so coming back in shame, and when Joab hears that, he, he has to address it. Instead of coming back with pomp and circumstance, the army comes back with shame and embarrassment. And so just think, the result of their loyalty to the king, the result of their victory has brought dis- depression and despair to their king. I mean, th- this, is, this ought not to be. And so when Job hears, he goes straight to the king, right into the room, right into where he's mourning. I don't care what the king's doing, I'm talking to him. And contrary to his reputation, Joab is actually the voice of reason in this scene. So in verse 5, when he says, King, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants. All your servants who have this day saved your life, the lives of your sons and your daughters. Remember, there's more than Absalom, you have more kids, they've been saved your wives, your concubines, you have put all of your, your servants who have saved all those people close to you, you've put them to shame because you love the man that hated you and wanted you dead. And you're hating those who loved you and were loyal to you and, and fought for you. You've made it clear today that, that all of these loyal servants, all of these people who gave their lives for you, they mean nothing to you. You've actually told them if they were dead and only one man, Absalom, came back, that you'd be happy instead of mourning. You, you couldn't care less if they had all died. That's what you're telling your people, kings. That's what Joab says. And these are hard words. They're harsh words, but they're true words, aren't they? They're true. They're, they're necessary. They're necessary words. And so David must be told he's treating those who love him and are loyal to him like his enemies. And he's treating the one who hated him like one who's loyal to him. And so we we recognize the tension here. David has lost his son, and he has a legitimate reason to mourn. But at the same time, David is the king of Israel. He is the Lord's anointed, and the person who has died, the person who's been killed, was a leader of a rebellion to overthrow the Lord's anointed. Absalom, though his son, was out to kill the king. And that's not something to mourn when, when that rebel dies. That's good news for the kingdom. And so there's tension here. And so David, he, he, he doesn't know how to, how, to, how to act as a father and a king, but, but in verse 7, Joab tells him how he's to act. 
And so Joab gives orders to his king, go address your servants. Thank them, speak kindly to them, have a, have a parade for them, because if you don't, I'm telling you, they're all going to leave. If you keep mourning here, by tonight, every single one of them is gone. And it's going to be worse for you, he says, than it's ever been from this time, from your youth until now. And so think about that. You, you thought Absalom's rebellion was bad. You thought Saul's pursuit of you was bad. You thought Goliath was bad. You thought any of the lions that you fought off, you think those are bad? They are nothing compared to what's going to happen if you don't deal kindly with your servants. And that's, that's what Joab says. And so David goes and he sits at the gate and all the people gather to him. Okay, so, so he's going to address them. Before we look at, at the final section, let, let me make a few points of application from, from here. There, there's two points that I, that I think are, are clear. And the first one, just, just what we just mentioned, what we just covered, is, is there's a time for hard words. I, I mean, think in this passage, is, there is an example for us, actually a positive example for us in Joab. It's not often that a preacher should or will say that. But I think Joab is a good example here because he sees the bigger picture. He recognizes what's at stake. And his right perspective shapes his hard words to the king. It's like Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I think Job is, is being a, a friend here, or at least partly. And so there is a time for hard words. I mean, I thought about Nathan's hard words to David. You are the man, David. Remember earlier when Nathan said that to him? Or think about Jesus in his ministry. He has hard words for the Pharisees doesn't he? he? He tells them like it is. Or in, in the, the book of Acts, when, when Peter has, has forsaken the gospel in practice and Paul confronts him to his face, right? those are hard words to Peter. And so, so there is a time for hard words. And so application is simply this, there are times in everyone's life where we need someone else to be bold enough and brave enough and loving enough to speak hard words to us. We need it. David needed to hear the hard words. And you need to hear the hard words, and I need to hear the hard words. So we all, at some point in our life, we need someone to be bold enough to tell us those words, to speak the hard words. And also, the the other point is that there are times in your life when you need to be bold enough and brave enough loving enough to speak hard words to a friend. And so, so we need to be open to hearing the hard words, but we also need to speak the hard words when it's necessary. As I was thinking about this, I realized probably as much as anyone how difficult this can be. Right? My personality type is such that I hate confrontation. I hate it. I want you to love me. I want to tell you things that, that you like to hear. I don't want to tell you hard words. I mean, I thought if I'm Joab, I'm probably going to avoid David thinking to myself, ha, He's going to learn. He's going to learn. And then I'm going to be affected when he doesn't learn. And I think, well, what is the Lord doing? Right? I, if I were Job, I would have avoided this. But Joab goes and he, he speaks the hard words. And as, as much as my temptation is to avoid confrontation, as much as your tendency may be to avoid con- confrontation, as Christians, we are called to speak hard words sometimes. Now, not all the time. Not all the time. But we're called to speak the truth in love, whether it's going to be received well or not. So maybe you need to learn from Joab. Maybe I need to learn from Joab and speak hard words. Maybe, maybe there's a, a conversation that happened this week or a situation where you can speak lovingly into the situation. 
And then the second application from this section is, is simply the cost of sin. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm struck by David's brokenness for the fact that I think his brokenness is a result of, of the fact that his sins cost his son his life. I may think that's why he's saying, oh, that I would have died instead of you. I think he feels the weight, and there's a guilt. He is the reason that his son is dead. And, and for every Christian, here's the point of application, the same reality exists. Your sins, my sins, cost someone their life, didn't they? Your sins, my sins, cost someone their life, and it wasn't your son or your daughter or loved one. It was the Lord himself. Your sin is costly. My sin is costly. I mean, I couldn't help but think about Isaiah 53. I mean, this is what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrow. He was smitten and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. His wounds brought us healing. This 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 is the cost of sin. The Lamb of God slain for us. He didn't pay for his own sin. Right? Absalom was guilty. Jesus wasn't. And if David is stricken by the weight and guilt of of his sin and the death of his son, how can we not be stricken by the weight of our sin and the cost of our sin? We should feel it. We should feel it. Our sin costs someone their life, but, but, but the Lord went willingly, didn't he? Open not his mouth, led to the slaughter. No one takes my life from me, he would say, but I lay it down freely. This is encouraging. Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for you, freely. Not compelled, but freely. Well, then finally, we, we close with the end of chapter 19, David's return to Jerusalem. So as the war ends, as, as, as the, this immediate war and battle is over, that the task of unification begins. And so the the road before David is long now. The nation has suffered greatly as a result of this rebellion. And and the two questions that that David has to address is, one, how am I going to treat those who opposed me? The enemies, those of Israel who went out with Absalom and and opposed me, how am I going to deal with them? And then second, how are we going to move forward? How are we going to recover from this war as one people? And so as we read through the rest of chapter 19, one thing to notice is that in chapter 19, these two factions begin to emerge, and we'll say more about this next week, but these two factions are Israel and Judah. And so you can just skim over that and not even notice, but, but there's all of Israel, and then there's Judah. These are the two factions that emerge. And if you're familiar with the history of Israel in the Old Testament, these two factions would, would exist for, for decades and decades to come. And so division in the kingdom is beginning here. Now, it's officially going to happen after the death of Solomon. So when David's son, here's a, a, a spoiler, spoiler alert, David's son becomes king. His name's Solomon. He has a great rule. But when he dies, there, there's battle again for who's going to rule, and the kingdom divides. So that's when it becomes official. But we see the, the seeds here. Division has creeped into the kingdom. And so David has the task of, of moving forward and unifying this nation and so, th- this chapter in 19, so at the beginning, or, or there in verse 8, the second half of verse 8, so in 9 through 10, and then there's a section at the end of chapter 19, there's division, that's the focus of the beginning. So, these are bookends of this section in chapter 19 that focus on division. 
which just highlights the difficulty. So David is returning home as king, but it's as if the kingdom is crumbling in his hands. So he's coming home as king, but things aren't the same as they were before the rebellion. And so we're going we're gonna to close by looking at that division, but let me just briefly state in the middle of chapter 19, that if verses 16 through 40, there's this, this interaction. So David has three interactions with three individuals. So as he's going back, there's three specific men that he encounters. So Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. Okay, so these are three men that we've, we've met before, and I'm not, not going to go into detail regarding these three interactions. Like I said, you can go read verses 16 through 40, but I'll simply point out that as David is going back, right, he is showing how he's going to deal with his opponents or with those who have deserted him in these interactions. And so in these interactions, David deals, deals gently and kindly and respectfully. So Shimei was a man that was cursing him and throwing stones at him, and, and when he comes back and says, I was wrong... David, instead of, instead of vengeance and killing him, which is what Abishai wanted to do, he, he says, you're not going to die, right? You were my opponent, you were cursing me, but, but you don't have to worry, I'm not going to kill you, right? This is David working for unification. And then, then Mephibosheth, which, uh, uh, Mephibosheth tells this story, which contradicts what, what David was told earlier by Ziba, I know there's a lot of names, but, but he hears the testimony of Mephibosheth and says, okay, I believe you. Split, split all the property. That's what he does. Instead of, instead of robbing Mephibosheth of all his stuff, which he had originally done, now he says, okay, split it. And then with Barzillai, he doesn't require him to come with him, this elderly man. who David says, come with me. And he says, I, I can't even taste anymore. What, what good is it for me to be at all your parties? I don't even know what pleasure is anymore. Why am I going to come back for you? So let me stay home. I want to die at home. He says, don't, don't let me go over the river. And David says, okay, I'm going to honor you. You, you go do what, what you want to do. In all these cases, David is just showing his, he's committed to reunification. His aim is to unite the kingdom. But that's going to take a lot of work. So, so notice there in verses 9 through 15, here's the division, the, the, the bookend. So first in verses 9 through 15, the end of verse 8 says, Now all of Israel, now think of Israel, those are those who were with Absalom, had fled every man to his own home. So all the Israelites had gone back home. After Absalom had died, they, they go home. And they're all wondering what their next plan of action is going to be. So they reason to themselves, well, we fled because of Absalom, right? We ran away from King David because of Absalom, but now Absalom's dead. What are we going to do? It seems like, they think, our only option is to bring back King David. That's all, that's all we can, we need a king, so we might as well bring back David. So what are we waiting for? And so Israel, it tells us, decides we're, we're going to lend our support to David, we're going to go back to David. We're, we're going to go with our heads down and our tails between our legs, but we're going to go back to David and make him king. And so we learn in verses 11 through 15 that although all of Israel had decided to support David, his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, had not yet lent their support to the king. And so here's, here's David's hometown, if you were, his own tribe who hasn't supported him yet. And so since Absalom's rebellion had taken place in Hebron, which is at the heart of Judah, right, some of David's own men had joined this rebellion with Absalom. And so it's certain that they had allied themselves with Absalom and opposed David. And so David says, okay, so we've got Israel on my side, but my own, my own people aren't even on my side. So he sends word to them and says, what are you waiting for? Priests of Judah, tell your men, I, why, why don't you bring me back? Why don't you bring me back to make me king? And, and the reasons, notice that David gives to Judah for supporting him, number one, I'm your brother, right? We're the same family. We're from the tribe of Judah. 
But I'm one with you. And then second, notice what he says. I'm going to appoint Amasa as commander of my army. And that's a big deal. Do you remember where Amasa came up earlier? He was the leader of Absalom's army. And he says, I'm going to put the leader of the rebellious army in charge of my army. And no other reason than to say, I'm not, I'm not, going, to, I'm not going to kill my opponents. You don't have to worry about my vengeance. I'm going to put Amasa over my army. And by the way, Joab doesn't have a job anymore because he disobeyed my orders. And so I'm going to put Amasa. So, so return, come back, he says. And so in this interaction with, with Judah, he's assuring them, those that opposed him, you're not going to be punished. We're, we have to move forward as one. And so he's trying to win back Judah. And so his, his actions towards Judah don't go unnoticed because the, the bottom half, the, the bottom of these bookends in verses 41 through 43, the end of the chapter, the men of Israel are upset because they hear what Judah's doing. Because Judah responds and they say, okay, we're going to bring the king back. And then Israel says, well, what are they doing? Why are they stealing the king? They, they think that they're special. They're stealing David and bringing him back. And so the men of Judah then say, well, he's one of us. We're not taking advantage. It's not like we're making him feed us. We're not taking advantage of this. We're just bringing him back to Jerusalem. And the men of Israel respond. And so there's just this back and forth, this lobbying. And the men of Israel say, well, we have 10 shares in the king. You're just one tribe. We have 10 shares in the king. He's more our king than yours. And, and besides, you guys had cold feet. You don't want to bring him back. We, we decided first to bring him back. We're the loyal ones. Why do you despise us for, for wanting the king back? And so that's how the chapter ends with this division brewing between Israel and Judah. And the chapter ends by saying the, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And David, as we end this chapter, David has a tough task. The rift is deep. The people are still divided. And it's, next week we'll see. The, the, the rebellion of Absalom wasn't the last one. But, but the final point that I want to make, and this is, this is as we close, is simply this. Politics among God's people. We see politics among God's people. Even here in Israel, we have division and this is a two-party system, if you will. We have the D D Democrats and the Republicans. We have the men of Israel and the men of Judah. The men of Judah and the men of Israel. These two sides are merging, and, and times haven't changed, have they? This is the nature of politics in a fallen world. This is the nature of human relationships in the fallen world. And so, so we, would, we would do well simply to take caution, because the division that we see here and the division, the anger, the finger-pointing, the self-righteousness that's, that's common every day in today's political culture is more times than not rooted in sinful human hearts. Right? So, so we, just, we would do well to take caution right? because what we see here is, is sinful humanity going back and forth. And that's what we see, I, I think, today. And, and just to be clear, this comes from both sides of the aisle, from every news network, it's not, it's, not, it's not a good guy, bad guy. They're, they're all bad guys. And while I could say a lot more about national politics, I, I want us I to leave here encouraged, okay? And so here's what I want to do. I just want to point out that division has always been an enemy of God's people. Always. So we hear God's people, Israel, under King David, they, they, were, they were given a great king, but division has been festering. It, it's been part of them and attacking God's people from start to finish. And division is contrary to God's purposes for his people. 
which means that unity is never, has never, and will never come easy. So, so do we, we just have to be aware that division seeks to divide us. This local body I'm talking about, I'm talking about this local body, division has often split and killed specific churches. So we should be aware of that, but here's, here's the good news, right? Here's the encouraging part that we're leaving with. Division will not have the last word. It won't. Division won't have the last word. In fact, in our gathering here this morning, as one people, and our gathering here this morning as one people is evidence that God is able to sustain a unified people. Praise God that we're gathered here this morning as Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. We are one people, and we ought to thank God for that. I mean, Israel and Judah, they overcame that. Right? God, we are here despite the division that started back then. God is able to sustain his people. And so we ought to thank God, but we also ought to be cautious because we are not immune. Fox Hill Road Baptist Church is not immune. In fact, we are never far from one rift that could destroy us if we're not careful. And so let us be on guard. Let us look to him who sustains us. Our hope is not in our ability to maintain peace, but in God's commitment to ensure that peace will be maintained. And so as I close, here's words from a local pastor. And I, I put them on a slide. They may be really small, so you can listen as I, as I read. This, this is just the encouraging note that I want us to leave on. He writes, How often on any given week I used to marvel that a congregation ever survived between petty bickering and flagrant sins, between hurt feelings and asinine stubbornness, between trivial priorities and tragic apathies. Yet it seemed that the fragmenting tendencies of human folly were always overcome by the glue of divine grace. Surely Jesus is building his church, or it would have vanished long ago. So praise God right? Divine grace. May that always be the case here. May we always be united by divine grace. We need him. Let's pray as we close.